You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we have Andrew Walker from Rangeley Capital back on the show to provide an update on the Discovery merger with Warner Media and to discuss his top five predictions for 2022. In this episode, we also explore how the price of Discovery will perform post-merger, why value stocks will outperform this year with a special focus on sporting goods retailers and cyclical commodity companies, the bullish case for cable companies, the fall of Peloton and how the price to value looks today, the law of large numbers, how high-flying tech companies might have their wings clipped, how SPACs will fare since their recent bubble bursting, and much, much more. Andrew is always so fun to talk to because he's full of ideas and very knowledgeable on the topics he brings to the table. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion with Andrew Walker. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today we have back on the show, Andrew Walker from Rangeley Capital. Andrew, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on for the second and a half time, Trey. Well, I'm super excited to dig into your top five predictions for 2022, but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Last time you were on the show is June 2020. We were talking a lot about Discovery and its potential merger with Warner Media. That was episode 359. And a lot has happened since then. Some news came out today. I thought it'd be great to just check in on that merger and see what's happening, how it's progressing. Yeah, I think everything is proceeding as planned. They just this morning, as you know, we were talking about, they just got regulatory approval for the deal. So, you know, that was kind of the last gating path. We're on track to close in the next couple of months. And I'm just still super excited for once this deal closes, the combination of Discovery and Warner Media together, it's going to create the third global scale platform with some of the best brands in the world. The other two would be Netflix and Disney. I think Warner Brothers, they've got Warner Brothers, the DC Universe, you merge that with Discovery and all of their channels, all of their brands. You put those together and I just think you've got a really interesting company trading very cheaply. It's going to gush cash flow. And I think that combination is going to be very powerful. Yeah. And for all that bullishness, the stock is still pretty depressed. I mean, it's trading around the 2019 levels, but for those who remember, it shot up to 3X in early 2021. It turns out Archegos was buying a bunch of stuff, leveraged five to one, and it kind of collapsed after that. But why is the stock still around 29 today, especially getting that regulatory approval and knowing that this merger is kind of going through now? Yeah. So I think in our last episode, we actually really talked a lot about all the Archegos stuff and everything. So I'll refer people to our last episode for that. But you know, I think for discovery, so this is not the discovery merger business, the core discovery business, people looked at them and they said, Hey, this is a company that has terminal value issue because discovery, they own the discovery network, HGTV, food, all these brands that were great in the linear cable bundle. But I think people looked at them and said, as that cable bundle dissolves, what is the place for discovery? Do they have a reason to exist? And the answer might've been no. If you wanted discovery-like programming, you might just go to Netflix and Netflix had a planet Earth competitor and all this different stuff. So you could get it from Netflix. You could go get Nat Geo on Disney and stuff. People were really worried about the terminal value for discovery. And I think the merger with Warner Brothers solves a lot of those issues. You put Warner Brothers, there was this great article in the Wall Street Journal on how HBO Max, like 10 million people signed up for it when Wonder Woman 1984 came out. And within seven days, 50 or 70% of them had canceled or something. So you combine all those headline grabbing things that people want to sign up for that HBO Max has, their new movies, their Game of Thrones spins and stuff. You combine all of that, which Discovery has content that people watch a lot of, but it's kind of more the mindless content, you know, 90 Day Fiance, Shark Week, Chip and Joanna Gaines, Food Network. You can watch a lot of that. That's the type of stuff that reduces churn. It's so good at reducing churn. You combine that with the headline grabbing stuff HBO Max has. And I just think this is going to be a killer system. So I think the terminal value issue gets solved from this merger. Oh, and then why is the stock not moving on all this positive regulatory move? And I think the answer is, A, this is a $100 billion merger. Those are rocky. That's big. There's a lot of integration to come. They're going to spend a billion and a half dollars to realize the synergies that they want to realize. That's a billion and a half dollars on severance, cost, firing people, all that type of stuff. It's going to be rocky. And from a technical dynamic, I think a lot of people 
are really scared to step in front of this stock before AT&T gets rid of Warner Media. And how that's going to happen, it's classic special situations type stuff. Discovery is the fish that's swallowing the whale and Warner Media. For every one share of Discovery outstanding right now, four shares will be created through this merger with Warner Media. And what's going to happen is Discovery will give 80 million shares to AT&T and AT&T will spin those shares out to all of their shareholders. And I think a lot of people are worried AT&T shareholder base is very dividend focused and very retail heavy. People are worried the guy who's had 500 shares of AT&T in his brokerage account since the 90s and lives off the dividends, he sees Discovery stock in his portfolio one day. He wakes up and says, that thing doesn't pay a dividend. I invested in a telecom company. And he sells. They're worried there's going to be waves of selling pressure when AT&T spins this out. And there's no real way to hedge it because so much stock is going to AT&T. And people are very scared to step in front of that technical overhang. And I get it. That's a concern. But to me, when I look at Discovery trading right now, trading probably eight times forward EBITDA for a global third scaled entertainment company with all this IP, it'll be gushing cash flow, huge synergies. They haven't even talked about revenue synergies yet. When I look at that combination, I think it's just too powerful a combination to ignore at these prices. Yeah. So Discovery right now has a 10% free cash flow yield, which is pretty tasty. And after this merger, I'm just kind of curious, it'll be a four and a half X levered merger, but they'll be able to pay that down pretty quickly. And they have a good record of doing so. Let's say that retailer does have Discovery stock now in their portfolio. Can they expect that a dividend might come in the near future, given the free cash flow they're throwing off? I think I always say the most instructive place to look at a company is their past actions. Past actions probably predict what a company is going to do going forward. For Discovery, they did this great merger with Scripps Networks back in about 2017. And when they did the merger, that was Scripps Network. I think they owned food and a couple other TV channels, but it was basically merging two linear cable channels together. And when they finished, they were four or five times levered. And they said, hey, guys, the synergies are going to be huge here. Our cash flow is going to be great. We'll pay down debt. We'll get back to a reasonable level. And guess what? Synergies were better than they expected. Cash flow is gushing. Within 12 months, they hit their leverage target. And then what did they do? Discovery is a John Malone company. They started buying back shares. So I think what happens, the share buybacks are on pause right now because they're in a merger. It's a big merger. There's going to be a lot of debt. But once this is through, I think history rhymes. They're going to merge. Synergies are going to be a lot bigger than people think. Cash flow is going to come in even higher because of those synergies. They're going to pay down debt rapidly. There's going to be so much cash. The debt is going to come down so fast. And then once that's done, I don't think they pay a dividend because this is a John Malone company. I think they buy back shares aggressively and they shrink the share count. And you know, if it's a 10% free cash flow yield, they'll buy back about 10% of their shares every year. And eventually the shares start going higher just because the cash flow numbers get so crazy. So also last time we were talking about this, there was a prospect of Comcast maybe coming in and entering the picture and disrupting this whole deal. Is that still on the table or have we passed that at this point? You know, it's unfortunate. I think when you look at the media landscape, there are two companies that stand out as subscale and in a bad place. And that's NBCU, which is owned by Comcast and Viacom CBS. And the reason is, look, they're just subscale. If you look at their assets and the interest in them versus Netflix, Disney, and the merged HBO Discovery, I think they pale in comparison. I thought NBC should step into this business and try to win either HBO or Discovery, You know, lob in a topping bid, try to win one of them so that they could be the scaled player. They didn't do that. And I think when you look two years forward, if you play this forward, I think HBO Discovery is going to be in such a good position because there's another merger to be done. They could buy either Viacom, CBS, or NBC, and they'll be buying a weak subscale player from a position of strength. So I think they can get a really good deal. And they can also say, hey, NBC, merge with us or else we're going to go buy Viacom instead because Viacom and NBC, they just can't merge together because NBC and CBS together, that's a no-no. I mean, they could try it and they'd have to sell NBC or CBS. And that scenario, Warner Brother Discovery would be a great buyer, but they'd still basically be winning by buying that way. So I just think Comcast should have stepped in here. And I would not be surprised two years from now if there's another big merger, HBO, Warner, Discovery merging with either NBC or Viacom. So the stock today is around $29. Bank of America analyst Jessica Reef Ehrlich just upgraded Discovery shares to a buy and raised her 12-month price target to 45. She had it originally at 34. Do you have a price target similar to that in mind? 
Yeah, look, I think I don't read tons of sell side, but I do think 45 seems reasonable. You know, at $45 per share, if I'm just doing my math right, this would be a $100 billion market cap company. I think in 2023, they could do $8.4 billion in free cash flow to equity. So that's fully taxed after interest, everything just free cash flow to equity. So at $100 billion market cap, you'd be talking about 12 times free cash flow. That seems very reasonable to me, especially because I think earnings will be growing after 2023. In 2023, they won't have fully realized all of their synergies. So there'll be more synergies to come in 2024. They'll be leveraging more of their investments into content. You know, everyone's over investing in content right now to hit scale. So they'll be leveraging more of that. So it's not just 12 times price of free cash flow, it's 12 times and I think growing pretty quickly and we'll probably be getting starting the share buyback thing. So yeah, I think 45 sounds reasonable. You know, I think three to five years out, it doesn't take a crazy amount to go right for you to be looking at the stock and saying, hey, this could be 60, 70, 80 dollars in three to five years just because of those cash flow dynamics and everything that we've talked about. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that update. I'd like to now move on to your top five predictions for 2022. Prediction number one is that deep value finally outperforms. So let's talk about what's been happening with deep value stocks and why they continue to be so depressed. And maybe talk to us about which sections you're seeing with the most promise. Yeah. So on the blog, you know, just at the start of the year, I do a predictions thing. And this year I had five predictions for 2022. And number one was that value outperforms. But I think it's really easy to say value outperforms, but how do you define value, right? Like, is it low price earning stocks and everything? It's really hard to kind of like point back and say, I won or I lost on that. So I took it a step further and said, look, there are two sectors that I'm seeing lots of interesting things. I'm seeing really low multiples, record results, aggressive share buybacks, and insider buying. And those two places are cyclicals. So, you know, steel producers, oil and gas explorers, lumber, that type of stuff. And the other area I'm seeing is retailers. And retailers spans the gamut, but the areas I was really think of is specialty retailers. So names like Abercrombie, Bed Bath & Beyond, that type of thing, or sporting goods retailers, which are the ones I'm really interested in. I think we'll talk about in a second, but things like Dick's Sporting Goods, Academy Sports and Outdoors, Hibbit Sports, and Sports and Warehouse. And again, all of them, they're trading for crazy low multiples, great balance sheet, gushing cash flow, buybacks, insider buying. And I've just been looking at them saying, like, why is the market trading these so cheaply? What am I missing? What is the market missing? Yeah. So when people are stuck in their house, they're trying to pick up new hobbies or maybe going camping. They're finally buying things like for activities that they maybe weren't in the past. So there's this big surge. And I think the idea is that that will kind of taper off now that people are kind of getting back into the world. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. So especially Sportsman Warehouse, Academy Sports and Outdoors, there's a lot of outdoors activities and people say, hey, did these guys... Yeah, gun sales were going crazy in 2021, but maybe everyone who was going to buy a gun for the next three years has bought a gun already. So they're going to have this huge trial for the next couple of years. Or yes, people bought tons of Nikes from Foot Locker in 2021, but now they've got enough Nikes and maybe the purchases going forward look a lot weaker. So yeah, that's definitely the big concern. You said you want to circle back to Nike. Did we touch on that yet? Yeah. So I think right now the market's concern, I can tell you, is they look at 2021 earnings and they say that is peak earnings. Earnings are going back to 2019 levels across the board. And I think that is painting the it with too broad a brush for two reasons. Number one, on the outdoor side, if you are a person who... I'm just going to use a hypothetical consumer. If you are a person who lived in New York City... COVID struck, you took your family and you moved to the burbs or rural or something, and you picked up hunting, you picked up fishing, you picked up golfing, any of those three. You're not going to churn just because COVID had stopped. Maybe you move back to the city, maybe you don't. But if you took up golf, you probably invested in golf lessons, you bought clubs. Like I'm not saying everyone who took up golf, hunting, and fishing is going to stick going forward, but it's a habit. It's a habit and a hobby. Once you form that habit and hobby, a lot of these people are going to stay. So I think their customer base has expanded markedly. You talk about COVID and you've got these COVID winners who they were growing like this and then COVID step changed them up. Yeah, they probably come back as COVID normalizes, but it's not back to the original baseline. It's a higher baseline. So across the board for the outdoors, I think they've got a lot of new customers. And then the other thing is, I think the competitive environment has really changed and it's changed in two ways. So Hibbit, which again, they've got a lot of places and places that aren't quite as competitive. And they say, hey, you know, in a lot of our communities, within a 20 minute drive, there were two stores that sold kind of the type of goods we sold. Us, 
and JCPenney. JCPenney went bankrupt during COVID. So now it's just us. So our competitive environment's much better because our competitors sold. And then the big overarching thing, that's just hit it on one side, but I think that does apply a little bit to all of them. But the real change, I think, is Nike in 2018 or 2019, something along there, they said, hey, we're focusing on our direct consumer business. We currently sell to thousands of suppliers, customers, whatever. We're going to cut that down. We're only going to work with 40 of our key suppliers and everyone else is out. So the mom and pop store across the street might not have Nike anymore, but Dick's Sporting Goods still does. Big Five Sporting Goods, which is one of the companies that talks about, I believe they got kicked out of the Nike program. So, you know, when you compare their 2019 earnings, that's 2019 earnings with Nike. They don't have Nike anymore. I think I haven't studied Big Five as much as I have the other companies, but those sales have to go somewhere. A lot of it goes to the Nike Direct. And it also probably goes to Academy or Dits, who still have the Nike store. So I think the competitive environment is so much better because a lot of the competitors went bankrupt. And of the ones who are still there, a lot of them don't have Nike anymore. And that's huge. Nike is the most popular sporting brand. So I just think the competitive environment for these guys is a lot better. Their customer relationship and their loyalty programs have grown leaps and bounds. Their omni-channel stuff is much, much better now than it was pre-pandemic. So I just think they're in a much better space where they're not going back to 2019 earnings. And by the way, you can also run the bath. What if they go back to 2019 earnings? You know, I'm looking at Academy. If we just said they go right back to 2019 earnings levels, treating it 12 times EBITDA and like 15 times unlevered free cash flow, is that crazy cheap for a retailer? No. But it's not like it's the most expensive thing in the world. And by the way, they've opened some stores up since 2019. So their earnings base, you should think, should be a little bigger just because their stores have opened up. So I just think the market's so concerned about bad comps, but it's not kind of like reading through the complexities of the situation. So how are you playing this? Are you putting together a small basket of these sporting goods stores? Sounds like you don't have a specific favorite out of the bunch. Yeah, I'm still really thinking it through. Each of them are different. Like Hibbit Academy is really interesting because they're in the South. I think they're stores and I love their focus on outdoors. Sportsman Warehouse is really interesting because they just had a merger. We talked about HSR when we were talking about Discovery Warner Brothers. Sportsman Warehouse was going to get bought by Bass Pro Shops slash Cabela's. And the DOJ said, no, that's too much concentration. And a lot of rural towns, the only places that sell guns are a Sportsman Warehouse and a Cabela's slash Bass Pro. If we let you merge, there's going to be rural towns that there's only one gun salesperson there. So they blocked that merger. So I think there's been a lot of forced selling at Sportsman Warehouse, and they got a big break fee from Cabela's as part of the DOJ blocking that deal. So that's interesting. Hibbit, they run the AutoZone model where they just repurchase shares like crazy, very cheap, but it doesn't have that like kind of outdoor piece. One of the things I like about gun sales, I mean, leaving the politics aside, gun sales are very insulated from the Amazon risk. You know, Amazon doesn't sell guns or ammo. Walmart and Dick's. Actually, another interesting thing about comping to the 2019 environment. In 2019 and 2020, Dick's and Walmart, who were some of the largest sellers of guns and ammo in the nation, they way pulled back on gun sales. Like Walmart, you can still go get guns, but the selection is really limited. You have to go ask for it. They've got ammo. But again, it's not like front and present, whereas Sportsman Warehouse, front and present, you go there, huge gun selection and everything. And in 2019 is when they started pulling back. And one of the things Sportsman Warehouse said is, look, in 2019, Walmart was liquidating their ammo and gun sales. It was the worst environment for us forever. So if you're comping them to 2019 earnings, you're comping a really bad environment for them. So I like that Academy and Sportsman still have that gun sales piece, which I think is a little bit uneconomically sensitive. And you know it's very unamazonable. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? 
a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So you're predicting also that we might see some outperformance in cyclical commodities. There seems to be this strange phenomenon happening where there are a lot of these types of companies throwing off cash and even exceeding their quarterly expectations, but the stocks aren't climbing. Talk to us especially about the commodities-focused business and what's happening there. Yeah. So the one I specifically mentioned is US steel. And what happens is the classic thing with cyclicals is everybody says, look, you don't buy them when the multiples are cheap because that's when they're at absolute peak earnings and things are really good for them. You buy them when the multiples are expensive because that's when they're at absolute trial earnings and things are probably going to turn around and the cycle is going to resume. Well, right now you've got this weird thing where they've had really low multiples for about a year now. So everybody's been saying, don't buy them with low multiples, wait for bad times and everything. But because they've had low multiples for a year and this economic boom, you know, oil prices through the roof, steel prices through the roof, lumber prices through the roof, because it's lasted for so long, these guys are minting an insane amount of money. You know, US Steel, I think they made like, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but 30 or 40% of their enterprise value they generated in cash last year. Like, it's just absolutely insane. So I've been looking at them and saying, okay, I know the old adage, but there's so much in cash coming onto their balance sheet. And, you know, every day that the environment doesn't fall off a cliff instantly is a lot more of their cash coming on their balance sheet. And similar to the retailers, insider buying, buying back shares like crazy. US Steel, as we speak, I think it's trading around tangible book value right now. And that's for a company that right now is generating like 10% of their market cap in cash every quarter. That's a really strange combination. So I just think those are interests. Oil is a popular one. Oil has gone from 60 to 90 over the past six months. Have the oil stocks moved? Yeah, a little bit, but they've probably moved at levels that would imply oil went from like 60 to 65. So again, right now they're just mining cash flow. And it's just very strange to see oil, steel, lumber, aside from the fact they're all commodities and maybe a little economically sensitive, they don't have a lot to do with each other. And all of them have the same dynamics where these companies just aren't getting any credit for how much cash flow they're producing right now. All right. So let's move on to prediction number two, which is cable stocks, another beaten down industry. What are some of the more compelling opportunities you're seeing with cable stocks here? Yeah. So I've been a long time cable bull. Right now, all the cable stocks have pulled back quite a bit over the past six months. Charter, which probably is the industry bellwether, has gone from over 800 per share to about $600 per share. That's about 25% drawdown. That's a big move for any stock, but for a cable company that should be like pretty economically resilient, you know, low beta, that's a really big move. People are really concerned. Fixed wireless competition is coming. T-Mobile was actually the fastest growing broadband company in America in Q4 with their fixed wireless business. They're worried about fiber to the home overbuilds. Every legacy telecom company, AT&T, Verizon, Frontier, Lumen, all of these guys are trying to upgrade their legacy 
copper DSL to fiber. So people see lots of competition on the horizon for cable and they've been selling down the stocks. I've actually been doing a series with Tegas with expert calls and diving into the cable. But my base case has been, you know, these concerns have been around for years and years and years, and they haven't really impacted the cable companies. And my base case continues to be the cable companies are going to continue to perform just fine going forward. They are gushing free cash flow. They are buying back shares like crazy. They're very well run. They are growing. And I think this year, the combination of that continued growth in cash flow and the share buybacks is just going to be too powerful of a story for the equity market to continue to ignore. And then the other interesting aspect is we've seen transactions in the space. So there's a publicly trader, traded overbuilder, which an overbuilder is the company who comes in and you know there's already a cable system there. And they say, let's build a second cable system. And that's a very poor business because it's not a monopoly. It's at best, a duopoly. And if there's a fiber to home paper, it's a triop. But it's a poor business, but it makes cash. And it, once the assets are there, the assets are there. Wow sold a bunch of assets for 11 times EBITDA over the summer. And right now, Charter, Altice, Comcast, the implied prices of their business is lower than 11 times EBITDA. So that's a worse business, a worse asset. And the assets that Wow sold, that went for a premium multiple. And we've seen kind of normal cable assets tend to trade for 15 to 17 times EBITDA. So we don't have to do math here. But 15 to 17 times EBITDA on these stocks, it'd be a hefty premium from the current levels. And Charter and Comcast in particular are much, much better assets than a lot of the even normal cable assets that are selling for 15 to 70 times EBITDA. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the overbuilt thing. I'm glad you touched on that. Is there anything we should hit more on the cable stocks? Yeah, I think, you know, the only other thing with cable is people are really scared about the looming competition, fixed wireless, fibers of the home. And again, that's been there for years and the cable stocks have done well. And I just did a series on discussing all the risk and people can go look at that if they want to really dive in. We talked to the the former head of the FCC, telecom industry experts and everything to frame that. But I do think people really dismiss the wireless opportunity that these cable players have. I think they've got a great opportunity in wireless. Charter and Comcast are are growing their wireless business basically as fast as Verizon. And you know, Verizon covers the whole nation and Charter and Comcast each only cover a third of the nation. So for them to grow that fast says that there's a real value there. And you can see why. Right now, you could go sign up for an unlimited plan with Charter if you had broadband with them already. Adding a mobile line with unlimited would cost about $20 per month. So broadband's about $50 per month. A wireless line from them is $20 per month. You probably pay about $70 per month per line for your mobile service right now. So they could save huge amounts of money if you get broadband and wireless from them. So that's why I think it's so powerful. I think they're going to take huge, huge share in wireless going forward. And as they do that, Comcast's wireless business just hit profitability in 2021. Comcast will in 2022. So right now, when I mention earnings multiple, they're a drag because they're investing in them. And they're as you grow a mobile business, it shows losses. But once it kind of hits stability, it'll be profitable. Once they hit profitability, I think people are going to be really surprised by how profitable these are, how quickly they're growing, the opportunity there. And I think when you add that in, it just the cable stocks are even cheaper than they appear on the surface. Yeah, again, Charter, especially looking just really interesting. Market cap's at 105 billion today. Enterprise value is at 196 billion. And just kind of an interesting observation there. Let's go on to your third prediction, which is that the COVID winners will win again. I want to focus especially maybe on Peloton because that's become a bit of a meme as of late and almost this poster child for a greed and fear index. What is the bull case for Peloton moving forward? Yeah. So I guess I should caveat by there's like, if you talk to someone and they're like, oh, I love this stock. I love this stock. And you ask, hey, do you have any money? They're like, no, I don't own it. That's one thing. But if you talk to them, they're like, yeah, it's 20% of my portfolio. That's another, you know, the first two are ideas and themes. I've done a lot of work on. I really believe in, and we're invested in pretty significantly. The next three things we're going to talk about are things that I call it mouth betting, where I've got a belief, but maybe it's not like so firm that I'm ready to put money in there. So I'll just caveat with that. But Peloton, I look at this company, it's gone from $20 pre-COVID to $150 at the height of COVID winners winning to $30 or $35 today. I look at it and say, hey, this is a business. It's not like all the subs they gained during the pandemic 
just go away magically. Like people got Pelotons into their home. They paid for them. They spent thousands of dollars on them. They form a relationship. You know, Peloton, people who love it, it becomes like a cult with them. They're using it every day. So I look at all that. I look at a company that trades, you know, if you just look at the subscription revenue line, the consumers, they're growing. I look at what it trades for. It trades, I think last I checked about eight or nine times subscription revenue, which is very cheap for a subscription company. I think they've got all sorts of optionality. And I think the market's got a little too pessimistic on Peloton, Stitch Fix, Zoom, companies like this, where their consumers love them. They were big COVID beneficiaries. And there's lots of tangential opportunities that they might be able to capture because their management teams are hungry and because consumer loves them. You know, like Peloton, the classic is at some point, Peloton's going to have a giant apparel business. And why couldn't Peloton get into, I don't know, uh, restoration hardware got into doing hotels and stuff. Why couldn't Peloton start opening Peloton branded gyms, Peloton branded hotels, Peloton branded lifestyle stuff? Like I'm just spitballing, but I'm just saying these brands that consumers love have so much optionality. And when I look at the stock price and how depressed the market is on them, it doesn't seem like the market is recognizing that. And by the way, they're also probably pretty strategic. You know, you heard the rumors that Apple, Nike, Amazon, whoever might be looking at Peloton, like there's nothing quite as strategic as somebody who's bought $2,000 to put a product into their house that they're going to use five times a week or something. Yeah. The acquisition thing is really interesting. You saw Lululemon purchase Mirror, for example, for half a billion dollars. It makes sense that some of these companies might be taking a look. I'm not so sure I buy it yet. uh, The speculation. Do you see much merit in say someone like Amazon actually purchasing Peloton instead of, you know, developing their own? Yeah, I think it's really tough to go and build your own thing. You know, people like to say, oh, a Peloton is just a bike with an iPad on it. If you've ever used a Peloton and then used like any competing spin bike, it's night and day. You know, like people used to say Tesla, oh, why can't the ice companies do this and stuff? Well, have you driven a Tesla? Like, it's really nice that people who do it love it. I'm not saying the stock's under overvalued here, but you know, these things where it just works and it works like magic are really hard to recreate. And there's also a little bit of a land share grab. I have a Peloton in my house now. If Amazon rolls out Amazon Prime bike, even if it's the same or better than Peloton, I'm not going to get rid of my Peloton. Now, if they gave it to me for free with my Prime membership, maybe. But I also have like, I have kind of a relationship with the instructors I love and stuff. Those things are very sticky. So I do think when you look at these things, like if you're a company and you look at Peloton strategically, you can say, okay, millions and millions of members who use this frequently, we get all sorts of data on them. We have a product that they're using frequently in their house. Like why did Amazon want Alexa and Echo and these things? Because having something in your house that you're frequently using is the best form of building customer habit. Having a Peloton in somebody's house, there's lots of interesting ways you could use that as optionality. You know, you could have Amazon Prime shows on there. You can do product integrations. There's just like lots of endless opportunities there for them to dream big and think of ways to integrate it, bundle it into the Prime membership as an extra benefit to get more people in Prime. There's just lots of things there that they could do. And by the way, again, eight or 10x revenue for subscription revenue for a very sticky service, like that's probably cheap in and of its own right. Talk to us about why the stock fell out of bed. It was trading up around 80, 87, and then it woke up one day and it was in the 50s, right? So what exactly happened? Did they miss some earnings? They've obviously lowered their forecast a little bit, but what happened here with this huge, almost 60% drop? So you and I are talking on, what is it? It's like Wednesday, February 8th or 9th. We just found out yesterday their CEO is stepping down. He's going to become the exec chairman. They hired a new CEO. I think what happened is mismanagement. In March 2020, demand for Peloton went through the roof. And for the rest of 2020, Peloton was trying to catch up. I got my bike at the end of 2020 and it was like eight week wait time. They were trying to catch up with demand far outstripping supply. They bought a bike manufacturer. They were ramping, 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 hiring like crazy everything, right? And then, you know, around the middle of 2021, demand starts to normalize and they just bought all of this supply. So now supply is, they've probably overinvested in supply versus demand. And along the same time, they're facing a lot of other issues. They have the Peloton treadmill recall, which I think was handled abysmally. In Q3, they come out and the stock's at 70 and they release earnings, which are a huge disappointment. They're pulling down guidance, everything. And somebody says, hey, like you guys, you know, you've got a lot of fixed costs. You've got a lot of investments. Do you guys need capital? And the CFO, if I remember, said, nope, we don't need capital. Three weeks later, they go and raise equity, right? So it just all speaks to a company that was mismanaged. I know John Foley, who was the CEO, 
He built this business after tons and tons of venture capitalists turned him down, said it was a silly idea. So he had some vision, but I think he was mismanaging it towards the end. They were kind of running from one fire to another. I think they burnt a lot of their credibility. And look, it has not been a great time in general for like kind of the COVID winter stock. So I think that all explains how we went from $80, $90 to $30, $35, wherever we are right now. Okay, let's move on to prediction number four, the law of large numbers. What high flyers do you see falling and what high flyers now seem maybe reasonably valued here? Yeah. So again, this is not one that I've got like insane conviction in, but I just look at how Apple, Amazon, a few others are up like 30% every year, it seems like. And at some point, the larger flaw numbers has to catch up to them, right? Like Apple's market cap can't be 15x the entire global GDP or something forever. And I just kind of thought this was the year because you look at them in A, a lot of them don't look cheap anymore. You know, five years ago, Apple's P was like 10 or 12 times. And today it's like 30 or 40 times. I haven't looked post the numbers, but the the multiples have expanded quite a lot. There is a lot of interesting competition and regulation that's coming. You know, we talked regulation and discovery, Warner Brothers, but regulators do not love Amazon and Apple size and everything. And there's always things with break them up and everything. And in the short term, that might not matter. But in the long term, like that's a headache. Look at what happened with Microsoft in the early 2000s. Management's distracted. You can't do everything. It's really tough having that regulatory scrutiny. So multiples are higher. I think regulators are coming. I think there's a lot of looming competition in some of their businesses. And I think you just put it all together. And I'm not saying that these things are going to go down 75% overnight, but I do think they can't keep delivering market beating returns forever. And combine all that with rising interest rates, which, you know, 40 times PE on some of the largest companies in the world. I think part of that is the fact they can borrow money at 2% and buy their shares back. If interest rates actually did rise, I think you get some PE compression from that as well. Combine all those. And I think you've got the market for some stocks that kind of stall out over the next couple of years. And then the other company I mentioned was Tesla, which you know has just an astronomical valuation. And people have been saying competition is coming for Tesla for years and years and years. But I do think at this point, you are finally seeing, you know, you've got the electric F-150 and all of these things rolling out. I think you're finally seeing progress on the competition side. Again, not to say Tesla is going to go down 75% or something. It was up like 12x from 2020 to the end of 2021. It just can't keep growing like that. I'm glad you brought up Microsoft because it seems like they've kind of broken through that regulation scrutiny you mentioned because you know they just announced a $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard. And I think back in the 90s, to your point, something like almost $70 billion acquisition would trigger a lot of concerns from the DOJ, et cetera. But they seem to be moving without that kind of friction anymore. What's your take on that? Well, I think you're right. You know, Microsoft, I remember a great tweet from a couple of years ago that was like the bull case for Microsoft is they're the only mega cap tech company that can do M&A anymore. And when the government was going to force TikTok to divest, Microsoft was the only company that could buy them. Right. So I do think that's true. But to your point on regulation, Microsoft, it's buying Activision. If you look at the spread, I think they're buying them for like 90 or 93 in cash or something. As we speak, Activision is below. It's at 81. So it's coming a little bit. But that's still a big, big spread for a cash merger with a, you know, the most credible buyer in the world. Microsoft's going to take the cash off their balance sheets to pay for it. The market is saying there's a good chance that regulators are going to step in and try to block Microsoft Activision. So even Microsoft's running into problems with that. But yeah, as you said, they're buying nuance. They're doing lots of M&A. They're the only person out there who it seems can acquire I thought somebody put another funny thing out there. Facebook tried to acquire Jiffy or whatever, which makes, you know, GIFs and they got blocked. And that was like a $200 million acquisition, but they can't buy Jiffy, but Microsoft can buy $70 billion Activision Blizzard. Like, is that serious regulation? It's just kind of hard to believe. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. All right. So moving on to prediction number five around SPACs. Last time you were on the show, you gave this very informative introduction to SPACs. But you're now writing that there's been this SPAC bubble that has burst. What's your outlook on SPACs nowadays? Yeah, so I think you and I talked in June 2021, which the height of the SPAC bubble was February and March of 2021. By June, it was very cold. And since then, I'd say it's gotten even colder. But you know what I've always loved about SPACs is if you buy a pre-deal SPAC, so you buy a SPAC, most SPACs have about $10 per share of trust. You buy a pre-deal SPAC, they announce a deal and you just hope, hey, they announce a deal and the stock market goes parabolic for the deal. And the best example of that would be DWAC. That's the SPAC that's merging with Trump's Trump's fledgling social media network. And the day before they announced that deal, the stock was trading at or below trust. So it was trading around $10 per share. And as you and I are speaking, it's trading at $84 per share. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't involved in that one. I would have loved to be involved in that one. But you know, that's obviously an extreme case, but that can happen. You buy a SPAC, you buy it below trust, you hope they announce a buzzy deal that the market loves and it goes crazy. You know, Rumble, another social media network's coming public through a SPAC. And every time they tweet about Joe Rogan, the stock price goes up another 10% or something. So you just hope you get lucky and that happens to one of the SPACs. And if it does, you're going to make an outstanding return. And if it doesn't happen, well, you bought the SPAC, you bought it below trust. And I can give you some examples and it'll liquidate in six or nine months. So you'll make one or one and a half percent of your money because you buy it at 985 and it'll liquidate for 10. So you make one and a half percent of your money in nine months. And is that the best return in the world? No, but it's a hell of a lot better than what you would get if you just parked it in like a cash account or something. And you're getting a better return than cash with cash-like risk with the added optionality of if you bought it and the stock went absolutely bonkers. You know, it's interesting. The last I checked, there's around 500 or so SPACs and there's still around $900 billion private companies, so 900 unicorns to choose from that you think would all want to go public. So it's not like there's not a lot of opportunity. Is it that the private sector is saying, hey, we're good right now? You know, they don't necessarily want to go. Where's the stall out coming from? So a SPAC 
is you go and raise the We Study Billionaire SPAC, right? And you get $200 million and you throw it in a bank account. And then what's going to happen is you go try to find a company to merge with, and you'll come and present it to your shareholders and say, look how great this deal is, approve our merger, give us our $200 million, and this will become a publicly traded company. But the reason I, as more like a kind of trader, like SPACs is you get the free look at it. You come to me with a deal. If I love it, I can keep it. If I don't, I redeem it and I get my money back. And the reason unicorns aren't going public through SPACs right now is right now, everyone knows when a SPAC finishes its deal, the stock's going straight down. So everyone is redeeming. So you'll see actually Treb, T-R-E-B, merged with a company. I'm forgetting what the ticker became. I'm going to look it up as you and I are talking. It became System 1, SST. And that was like a $500 million SPAC. And I think 99% of shares redeemed. So if it wasn't for outside financing, we can talk about that in a second. When they merged, they were like, great, we're getting three, four, $500 million, whatever was in trust. When they went to actually collect on the trust, there was only like three or $4 million left in it. And what company wants to go through all the headaches of a merger, all the expenses of a merger, and find out at the end that there was only $4 million? It costs more to do the merger than they're actually getting in some of these cases, right? So nobody wants to go through that. So right now, every private company is hanging up the phone if a SPAC sponsor calls them because they're saying, I'm going to go through all this headache. And at the end of the day, there's not going to be anything left in trust. And my stock's going to trade like absolutely bonkers. They're just hanging up the phone on them. We can talk about the exceptions to those rules if you want, but People will say, oh, these facts, 200 million in trust. There's lots of targets. No credible target wants to take your money because they know there's no money once push comes to shove. Now, I know Rangely was big on the planet SPAC that has essentially busted from the start. Is this what we saw there with redemptions? Is that what's happened in that case as well? Yeah. So Planet, so that's more my partner, Chris. Chris has a really good relationship with Niccolo and Planet is a really interesting company. I can't claim to be a full expert there. I'd have to defer to him. But I think what happened there is, look, so Planet is different because they had a super credible sponsor. I believe he actually has done, his facts have done the best of anyone. Super credible sponsor, super interesting company. We should talk about the financing in a second because I think financing is a real key to SPACs going forward. But what happened is that merger completed. And I think the stock was at 11 and people were really excited. And it completed in like September or October. And then since it completed, every growth company in the world has fallen like 50%. And Planet, I think, has kind of been falling along with them. I don't think there's... That is, again, it's a unique case where it's a real company with real sponsors. I just think if you were a 30x revenue company over the summer, you're a 15x revenue company today. And I think they just got caught up in that trade. Let's talk about the financing issue you brought up with SPACs. What's happening there? So I mentioned how if you're a SPAC and you've got 200 million in trust, you go merge with someone and at the end of the day, you're going to deliver two to 4 million. I think the only way SPACs are getting deals done going forward, and actually there was a SPAC that called off a deal today, I'll talk about in a second, but the only way SPACs are getting deals done right now is if they've got a sponsor who's going to commit a serious, serious check to the company, right? So we talked about Pershing Square Tontine last time, which unfortunately that deal was blocked by the SEC. But they've always had an advantage where Bill Ackman's fund is going to write a billion dollar check into whatever deal they get announced. So if you go public through Pershing Square Tontine, even if everyone redeems, Bill Ackman has written a billion dollar check. There is a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. I just mentioned Treb, which merged with System One. 99% of shareholders redeemed, but they were backed by Kane Holdings, which is Bill Foley's kind of like quasi hedge fund merchant bank. And Kane backstops a ton of these redemptions. So if it wasn't for that backstop, the company would have only delivered 5 million in cash on the back end. But because of the backstop, they still got hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think for a lot of these companies, the trick is having a sponsor who's going to kind of put a check and put his money where his mouth is. And MBAC, which had a merger that got called off this morning, it got called off because too many shares redeemed. And I believe in the press release, they said, hey, we're going to go try and find another SPAC deal because if your deal fails, you still have a little bit of time left to go try and find another SPAC deal. And they even said, we're going to try and find another deal. And in our next deal, we're going to have so much committed financing that even if everyone redeems, we'll be able to get the thing going through. So I think like for SPACs to get deals done now, committed financing is the name of the game. But a lot of the SPAC sponsors who raise money at the height of the boom, they just don't have access to that much committed financing. Like Not a lot of people can write $200 million checks to cover redemptions. All right. So are we talking now that SPACs are totally dead in the water or are you still seeing some interesting opportunities in the SPAC world? Yeah. So I think there are two really interesting places for SPACs right now. 
The first is, you know, I mentioned go buy a spec below trust and you're going to get cash or above cash like returns with that added optionality where if they announce the Trump DWAC merger, the stock could go parabolic. A couple I like on those lines. So IPOD and IPOF, which are both some of Chamath's specs. I'm sure everybody knows who Chamath is. They trade, as we talk, around 990 per share. Trust is 10. So they trade for about a 1% discount and they've got till October to announce a deal. So if they don't announce a deal in the next October is what, that's seven or eight months from now? You're going to make 1% over seven or eight months. Not the best return in the world. Everyone should consult a financial advisor, not financial advice. But unless you think like JP Morgan is committing fraud on these trust accounts or something, you're going to make that 1%. So that's your downside. And your upside is look at every SPAC that Shamath has launched. Most of them go parabolic once he announced because he knows how to find buzzy targets. You know, the IPOF has been rumored to merge with Discord, which I think would go crazy if you did it. There are plenty of other buzzy SPACs out there. What if you're invested in the SPAC that merges with Starlink, if that came public or something, or SpaceX or something? And so I think you get lots of optionality. So IPOD, IPOF, I could see something buzzy happening there. SoftBank has a SPAC, SVFA, that trades 2% below trust. It has until January to find a deal. So a little bit less than a year for a 2% return if they don't announce a buzzy deal. And who knows if they announce a buzzy deal. And then CONX is Charlie Ergen of Dish Network, Dish TV fame. That's his SPAC. It trades about 2% below trust and that's got till October. So again, seven or eight months, 2% return if he doesn't announce a deal. If he does announce a good deal and Charlie Ergen is famous, famous for being a good negotiator, good at M&A and all that. If he announces a super buzzy deal, who knows what happens to the stock? So I like those. And then on the other side, I don't have a particular example, but I've been looking a lot at DSPAC. So these are companies that have already gone public through a merger. And the beta for companies that went public through a SPAC right now is one. They all just trade straight down together. And I think you can find lots of interesting examples. So I recently wrote up XL Fleet was one of the buzzy electric vehicle SPACs. That trades for $2 per share right now. They've got about $2.40 per share in cash on their balance sheet. So that's trading below cash. There's a lot of other SPACs that trade for very, very low multiples. I think those could be interesting. They're screaming for an activist to come in there and kind of liquidate or sell the company, right? And then the other area, so Iron Source IS is an interesting one. It's a real company. They came public through a SPAC. They're growing like crazy. This year, they're going to grow 60% with 35% EBITDA margins. It trades for about 10x forward sales. So it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it is a real growth company backed by... It was went public through Tama Bravo SPAC, which... Tom Bravo is the best private equity software investor in the world. They put in like $500 million into the SPAC at deal price at $10 per share to get the deal done. So they wrote a half billion dollar check at 10. Real company, real growthy. It's trading at $7 per share right now. Again, I'm not an expert in the space, but that type of thing where you've got a real sponsor who put tons of money into it, knows the space well, and the stock's trading well below it. I think that's a great place to look for opportunity. Well, this is why I love talking with you, Andrew, because you're just full of these amazing ideas and you've given us a lot of homework. I'm going to go study all these things and check them out. For those who don't know, you write an amazing blog with a lot of these ideas featured there. So why don't you go ahead and give people a handoff where they can read about this stuff, follow along with what you're up to and any other resources you want to share. So my blog is yet another valueblog.substack.com. And we've mentioned a ton of the stuff I've done on there. I had to write up on XL Fleet. And then if I can do a competitor, I also have yet another value podcast. I have a lot of the guys who you've had on here come on and talk about kind of their best and most convicted idea. It's an hour, just deep dive into a stock idea. And you know, it's not for everyone, but for people who love stock ideas, it's good stuff. Thank you so much, Andrew. Let's check back in, especially see how this merger goes with Discovery and some of these other SPAC opportunities. Super interesting. Would love to catch up with you sometime soon. Thanks again. Hey, love to come back on. Thanks so much, Trey. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this time. If you're loving the show, please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can always reach out to us. You can find me at Trey Lockerbie on Twitter. And if you want to dig into some of these ideas, there's really no better place to start than the TIP Finance tool. Simply Google TIP Finance. It should pop right up and go have fun. With that, we will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.